Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, Marin County teens are using drugs and alcohol at a rate almost twice as high as the state's average. We'll find out why and what can be done. And we'll do some Monday night quarterbacking with Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy, to do a Super Bowl postmortem and talk Warriors. Plus, we'll talk with George McCalman, author of the book, Illustrated Black History. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Tonight we'll be talking about Marin County's unusually high rate of substance abuse among teenagers. And later in the program, I'll be interviewing George McCalman about his book, Illustrated Black History. But first, Bay Area sports fans were dealt a crushing blow last night by the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. The 49ers, in case you haven't heard, lost to the Chiefs in overtime, 25-22. to So here to help us process this loss and figure out what comes next is our friend Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy. So welcome back to State of the Bay, Steve. Thanks for having me, Ethan. I, I'm sure that not the happiest of circumstances for me to return, but always like being on with you. We definitely wish we had better circumstances to discuss, although maybe it's more important that we have you on during these times of loss so you can help us process this. So first of all, the 49ers, as many people know, had a team stacked with talent, and a lot of people picked them to win the Super Bowl yesterday. So what happened? Why do you think they lost? Or do you think they just got beat by a superior Chiefs team? I think after the game, I sort of focused, maybe hyper-focused on Kyle Shanahan doing what he does often in these big games is sort of go away from his best players, which in this case would be McCaffrey. I thought that in the to start the second half, he really kind of overcompensated because the Chiefs were really gearing up for the run. And so he just he threw six straight passes to start the second half. That wasn't great. But then when you really look at it and get some perspective – just a death by a thousand paper cuts. You, you had the uh, missed extra point that didn't help, obviously, in a game that went to overtime. You had the fumble on the punt where it hit uh, Luter Jr.'s foot and Ray Ray McLeod couldn't pick it up. You had a lot of weird penalties, more false starts in a game than I can remember in a long time. So just a lot of errors that they made, and it didn't seem like the uh, injuries were helping them out too much either. Losing Dre Greenlaw to a, an Achilles tear was huge. Debo Samuel seemed like he pulled his hamstring. He wasn't great throughout that game either. He couldn't get any separation. George Kittle had a shoulder injury. So just a lot of bad things happened. And they still almost won. But once again, another heartbreak for a team that back in the 80s and 90s used to make Super Bowls fun. Well, that's a great point. They won five in a row, and then now this is their third loss in a Super Bowl in 11 years. And I'm curious about some of the individual players. Let's talk about the quarterbacks. Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, really seemed the best. Second year, last pick in the draft, 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy. Mahomes was under pressure a lot in the first half, but then things really turned around. And then, of course, in overtime, he just marched down the field and got them the touchdown when they needed it. What would you make of Purdy's play versus Mahomes here? Yeah, I think Mahomes really it was sort of emblematic of his entire season. Uh, his entire season, he seemed like he wasn't quite playing as well as we've been used to watching. And then at the end of the season, in the playoffs, he saved his best for last. And that kind of happened in last night's game. He wasn't really that good in the first three quarters. 
The 49ers defensive line had a lot to do with that. He looks a little bit more shook than I've seen him in a long time, but then, of course, pulls it out in the end because he has probably more confidence than maybe any athlete on the planet right now that he is going to march down the field when they need a touchdown and score. I thought Purdy played pretty well. He wasn't amazing. Uh, I thought that he was step for step with Mahomes uh, in terms of overall performance. Uh, 49ers definitely weren't quite as successful on third down as they would have liked. I think they only converted four out of 12, and some of that falls on Purdy. But overall, he did make some nice throws. The throw to Conley he made was an absolute dime, mm-hmm. and he didn't throw an interception. Mahomes did. So I, I didn't think Purdy was the reason why they lost the game, but Mahomes in the end was the reason why the Chiefs won. Yeah. But what do you think about the coaching? You mentioned Kyle Shanahan maybe could have had a different approach, but I'm curious about the overall how the team seemed to be coached coming onto the field and maybe lumping into that, the defensive coordinator of the 49ers. I mean, on that last play in particular, they definitely had some, some, uh, some blown coverage there. Nicole Hardman had got the eventual touchdown to, to win the season for the chiefs. Curious just your overall take on, on the coaching. It's tough to really blame Steve Wilkes after a game where you hold the chiefs to uh, so few points in regulation and it's just tough to keep stopping Patrick Mahomes. The defense is on the field a lot. I think they're on the field for like 79 plays, which is quite a few. And But I do think that it was obvious that there was a little bit of disconnect between Shanahan and Wilkes at one point in the game where Shanahan called a timeout because he didn't like the defensive formation that Wilkes had out there. There were some blown coverages. I really think the Dre Greenlaw injury was a, was a huge one. He's, along with Fred Warner, is how they patrolled the middle of the field. They didn't have him. And I thought that I thought that the team actually in the beginning of the game looked as hyped up as we've seen in a while. The energy level was great after the effort was questioned after the Lions game. I had never actually heard that before where the 49ers coaches actually said they were embarrassed by the lack of effort in an NFC championship game. That was not a problem yesterday. Uh, one thing that a lot of people were kind of seizing on today is the fact that apparently either Kyle Shanahan didn't know the rules or he didn't relay them to his players on overtime. The rules are a little different in overtime for the playoff games. And it seemed like the players actually, I think Eric Armstead said, we, I didn't know that the rules are different until I looked at the Jumbotron during overtime. So that was, but I'm not really sure how much that actually went into what happened in today's game. I thought Shanahan did an okay job. I do think that. He got a little bit too cute in the beginning of the second half, like I mentioned earlier, going too much to the pass. Yeah, well, and he did did seem to have a rationale for why he elected to uh, receive the ball first in overtime. So at least he seemed to know what he was doing. Now I'm just curious about going forward. As I mentioned, this is traumatic for a lot of 49ers fans just to process the loss here. But what about the near future? Is this going to be the Niners' best shot at a Super Bowl for the foreseeable future, or do you think they have a chance to come back soon? On paper, they're the favorites to win the Super Bowl next year. So obviously, they're still going to be a talented team. They had the advantage of Brock Purdy being on a rookie deal. So instead of paying a quarterback, you know, twenty-five to fifty million dollars a season, they're paying him under a million. So you can put a lot more talent around him under the salary cap. I don't think that the window is actually closed, but. We've just seen this in the past. These Super Bowl hangovers are real, especially for the losing team. It's just tough to go all the way to the precipice of a championship. And the 49ers now have done this three times in the last decade plus. They lost in 2019, after the 2019 season to the Chiefs as well. And it's just tough. I mean, a, a elongated season means more injuries a lot of times the next year. But I think also the mental strain that this takes when you lose at – these, these games again and again, and they lost NFC Championship games, they lost Super Bowls. 
it is tough to pick yourself back up. We saw it with Jim Harbaugh's 49ers. After they lost mm-hmm. that NFC Championship in Seattle, a year after losing the Super Bowl to a Ravens team they should have beat, everything just sort of unraveled. I don't think that's going to happen here. It's not as chaotic of a team and a coach as Harbaugh's team was back then, but it's just tough. It is tough to pick yourself off the, back off the mat and get all the way back there. Do you think they're going to make any changes this offseason? Any holes they need to fill? I mean, I remember talking to you about their concerns around their kicker, but Jake Moody actually kicked uh, really well uh, last night. But I'm just curious if you see any upgrades that the team may want to make. It's kind of funny. When they drafted Moody, they said the reason why is because they had no openings on their roster. All their starting spots were taken were, were already uh, spoken for, which seemed a little arrogant at the time. And I think that they have to look at this season and realize that the offensive line finally needs some work. They really have just done this situation where they have Trent Williams, a Hall of Fame left tackle, and then they just patch it together around Trent. And the right side of the offensive line was not good yesterday. And I think that's going to be a part that they look toward. I think safety obviously came back to bite him uh, this year when Hufanga got hurt, when he tore his ACL. They really, the lack of depth uh, in, in the defensive backfield was pretty much on display. I think Deshaun Gibson actually made a couple good plays in the NFC Championship game, but there were times where he's starting to look his age, and they had Jair Brown, a rookie, starting back. They had Logan Ryan, who they picked up the scrap heat to be a nickel cornerback because they couldn't trust Ambry Thomas anymore. So I think, yeah, defensive backfield for sure, offensive line for sure, and then I don't know. I mean, how many more years does Eric Armstead have left? He's making a lot of money too. There will be some changes. There also might be a change to the defensive coordinator. I don't know. It seemed, didn't seem like Shanahan and Wil- mm-hmm. Wilkes are really vibing the entire season. Wilkes started the year in the press box. He got moved down to the sideline at you know midseason. So I'm wondering if they're going to make a change there as well. But yeah, I, th- I think the offensive line is probably the biggest one that I would address, and then safety right behind. Well, we'll have a long, painful offseason to see what happens with the 49ers. I do want to move on to a team that's still playing now in the Bay Area. That's the Golden State Warriors. They've shown some signs of resurgence recently. Draymond Green came back from suspension. They seem to be playing a lot better. Jonathan Kuminga seems to have really emerged. And they had a big thriller of a win against the Phoenix Suns just this uh, past Saturday night. Phoenix Suns are the number five seed in the Western Conference, also the home of former Warriors star Kevin Durant. Things got chippy there. I'm just curious what you make of the Warriors now and how significant that win was against the Suns in particular. Man, that was a great game, first and foremost. That was fun. Uh, One of the best games I've seen in the NBA all season long, and there's a reason why the NBA likes to put the Warriors on national TV because there still is no show quite like them when Steph Curry's playing like that, and that shot he hit at the end on that crazy pass by Pajemski was, was pretty incredible. I don't know what to make of the Warriors, Ethan. It's, it's, it's tough. <laughs> Every time that we feel like uh, it's, it's time to trust them, they go on a little slide and lose a game that they had a 25-point lead in in the fourth quarter or something like that. I, I do think, though, that the Kaminga thing is sustainable. He looks as confident as he ever – well, he's always been confident, but you're actually seeing it translate to results on the floor – I think that he's almost like a new, a midseason addition, just the way that he is decided, okay, no one really can stop me. And he's their only guy who can really score in the paint with any sort of regularity. It'll be interesting to see what happens when Chris Paul comes back because Steve Kerr loves to play Chris Paul, especially in those closing lineups. And that's kind of a small closing lineup. You know, Pajemski has uh, kind of fought his way and he's actually been leading the team in minutes in a lot of these games lately. It's funny if they, they'll go as far as their defense takes them. Draymond has been absolutely incredible to use his favorite phrase throughout the entire time since he came back 
and the defense has been just light years better, as Joe Lakin might say. And if they can continue that, not many teams in the NBA are playing defense right now. So if the Warriors can be a top 10 defense or at least like top 12, then I think they can sort the rankings a little bit and uh, in the standings and maybe probably be in the play-in tournament kind of situation, not a top six seed. But I don't know. I, I, I am cautiously optimistic about them at this point. Well, I wonder how much of this is attributable to Coach Kerr. Now, Jonathan Kaminga, we were just talking about, publicly complained about his playing time, and now he's been a starter. Uh, Clay Thompson not getting as much playing time. Has Coach Kerr made a shift in terms of playing more of these younger guys versus the veterans? Well, I think in Kaminga's case, yes, and Pajemski's case, definitely. He loves pots, absolutely. You can just tell. <laughs> he, he plays them in every single lineup, including closing lineups lately, and that's at the expense of Clay, as you were kind of alluding to there. And I think Kaminga just forced his way into it. I don't think that Kerr particularly liked being called out with the media, and this is not the first time that Kaminga has done it. He did it in the playoffs, too, where he went to reporters and complained about his lack of role, lack of playing time, didn't know why he was getting taken out and that kind of thing. I don't think Kerr liked that so much, but apparently, according to reports I've seen, Kerr and Kaminga's relationship has improved since Kaminga went to the press the last time. And also his play has just gotten so good that he can't be taken off the floor. Kerr's main thing, I think, really was that he wanted to keep Wiggins in the fold, and the lineups with Kaminga and Wiggins were just awful. They were getting outscored mm-hmm. by, like, you know, over 100 points, and they hadn't even been on the floor that much with each other. Now it seems like with Draymond as the connector, the two of them can actually play together, and that improves the defense. And with Kaminga being as aggressive as, as he's been offensively, it gives him another outlet instead of just having to you know ask Steph to score 40 points every single game. Yeah, Draymond, once again, being being the glue there, potentially. I'll just have time for one more question for you, and that is on the somewhat sad story of the Oakland A's. Although for local A's fans, it sounds like Las Vegas residents are starting to waver on their commitment to the A's. Las Vegas mayor came out essentially against the A's moving out of Oakland. Pretty surprising to hear that from the city's mayor. Curious what you make of the situation in uh, in Las Vegas and for the A's, they also have not seemed to make much progress on their ballpark plans down there. Is there any hope for A's fans in Oakland that they might stick around or anything that's jumping out of you about how that team is uh, moving along? Well, when John Fisher is involved, you can always have hope of some sort of incompetence and a failure. So John Fisher has never done this before successfully. So why do we believe he's going to get over a billion dollars in funding and make this project happen? The mayor of, of of Las Vegas coming out against it is kind of a story and a non-story. It kind of shows like how iffy their whole deal is right now in Vegas that they would come out, that she would come out and say this, but the, the site that, that the, where the A's want to build is not incorporated into Las Vegas. It's just Clark County. So she wants them in downtown Las Vegas, which is actually in her jurisdiction. And so that's why she made that complaint. But it's still though, even, even though what she says doesn't really carry a whole lot of weight right now, it's still, you know, no no renderings of the stadium. We haven't seen any drawings that are actually realistic. Uh, the financing, we have no idea what's going on there. This thing is supposed to open up in 2028, and we also don't know where the A is going to play in 2025, 26, and 27. So, yeah, there, there's, I mean, is it likely that they're going to stay in Oakland? No, but is there hope that John Fisher will screw this up and they won't go to Vegas? Sure. 
So maybe we can always bet against John Fisher at the least. Well, Steve Berman yep. of The Athletic, also known as the Bay Area Sports Guy, thank you so much for coming on State of the Bay and talking about all these highs and lows of Bay Area sports. We really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks, Ethan. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to Dr. Matt Willis and Dr. Emily Tajani about Marin's concerning adolescent substance abuse problem. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. We'll hear how, in prison, baseball can offer more than just physical benefits. It's it's literally, they almost sound corny, it saved my life, but the fun aspect of what keeps me sane because we get to escape from reality, as Brandon used to say, two to three hours a day from being in prison. Stigma, support, and sports. In a new episode of Uncuffed, that's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. This week in This American Life, when Zona decided to find a husband, she gamed out how to find the right one. Took out an ad, asked men to send the credentials, tax returns. I don't believe that just falling blindly in love is the answer. Don't fall in love. This is what has caused all the problems in the world. No doesn't agree with that approach. The man she married, how to fall in love this week. For This American Life, tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock here on 91.7 KALW. So welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about underage alcohol and drugs in Marin County and how teens there are using at a rate that is almost twice the state's average. So do you feel that drugs and alcohol are prevalent at your teenager school are you concerned that your child might be drinking or using drugs? And kids, teenagers, if you're listening, have you tried drugs or alcohol? And if so, why? You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. So Marin County is consistently ranked as the number one healthiest county in California, by the Robert Wood Johnson County Health Rankings. But there's one notable exception. When it comes to underage substance abuse, Marin's rate is nearly twice the state's average. Of 11th graders across California, 23% reported using alcohol or drugs in the month prior to taking the survey. Yet in Marin County, a whopping 49% of teens reported doing so. So here to explain what's going on and how we can tackle this problem as parents and as a community, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Emily Tajani, a Marin-based adolescent psychologist specializing in addiction medicine. Welcome, Dr. Tajani. Hi, thank you so much for having me here today. We're pleased you can join us. And we're also joined by Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County's public health officer for the past 11 years. So welcome, Dr. Willis. Great to be with you. All right. Well, Dr. Tajani, let me start with you. Can you just describe what the problem is in Marin County? It's such a healthy community, as I mentioned, but twice the national average with underage drugs and alcohol use. What exactly are the statistics here? Yes. So rates of youth, um, alcohol and other substance use are um, quite a bit higher in Marin County than what we see in other counties throughout the state. And um, not surprisingly, we see something similar with rates of adult um, alcohol and substance use in Marin County compared to other parts of the state. 
Um, I'm going to pause there and give Dr. Willis a chance to. Yeah, Dr. Willis, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, as a county public health officer, I should have directed that question to you first. Why don't you uh, describe a little bit about what's going on in Marin County? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks for the starting with the data. I think that's a great place to start. And as a as a clinician and epidemiologist, I I think about you know data and uh, as the diagnostics of of the issue itself, uh, whether it's for individual patient or for the community as a whole. And we really look at the vital signs of the community, and we see in Marin, as you said. Largely very healthy vital signs overall, long longevity. We have the longest life expectancy of any community, high rates of regular exercise, good nutrition, access to healthcare. But there is this, you know, shadow side that we see consistently, um, across all marine communities, really. And over time, it's been, you know, uh, many years where we've seen much higher than state average rates among almost any indicator of substance use. And just to just to put a pin in what you intro with in terms of our data for for kids, the California Healthy Kids Survey is the best source of data, I think, for us for understanding child uh, substance use rates. Um, it's a it's a survey that's administered every year to seventh, ninth, and eleventh graders, um, and year after year we see that we're you know our rates are much higher. in In the latest survey, we see that Marin County eleventh graders, uh, when asked. How have you used alcohol or drugs? And that's defined as, you know, aside from prescription drugs or other drugs available over the counter, um, illegal drugs in the past 30 days, about half of Marin County, I love the graders answer yes to that question compared to about 25% or 23% at the state level. At ninth grade level, also concerningly, about 25% of our ninth graders answered yes to that question compared to 13% at the state level. So in Marin, we are using um, earlier, you know, we're seeing, you know, more use among our freshmen or first years in high school, but also higher rates throughout and accelerating up to half of our, our, our 11th graders using substances. So I think that's an important way, you know, when, when we're bringing this information to the community to start the conversations about this, to really answer that question about whether or not this is an issue, I think we can sort of put that to the side and move on to the questions around how, how do we address this and what do we make of this? Well, and Matt, it seems like part of understanding how to address it is maybe digging into that data a little bit deeper, why Marin would be higher. And we know that affluence, stress, boredom, they're all risk factors for underage substance abuse. But Marin isn't alone in the Bay Area with those kinds of demographic uh, criteria. We have, Are there kids in Palo Alto or even in communities like Beverly Hills, Pasadena? Are, are they also exhibiting this high rate of underage uh, substance abuse, or is there something specific to Marin? Well, I think you know, Dr. Tashani will have so- something to say about this, given her pra- her practice in Marin. My my perspective is that Marin, um, we do know that one of the sort of the drivers of substance use at the individual level, especially among among adolescents, is stress itself. Um, and we know that Marin County is characterized as a largely affluent community. There is a focus on, on achievement and performance, uh, which brings stress, uh, and that can certainly be a driver. But as you say, that's probably present in other Bay Area counties. I think what may also be unique to Marin is that Marin has um, a particular identity and particular culture into itself. You know, there's keep Marin Marin. You see those bumper stickers. Um, you know, pursuing the good life is something that is part of Marin culture and substances are seen as contributing perhaps to that good life. And so, you know, one of the unique factors in it may be that sort of confluence of a high stress environment 
driving some adolescents to use substances combined with a social acceptability or even desirability of uh, uh, substances in certain situations. Well, Emily, let me uh, pose that question to you. What, what are you seeing on the ground in terms of what might make Marin County you know, distinguishable from other similar counties in terms of the economic, racial, other uh, demographic data that would ex- partly explain why the rates are, are higher for, for teens there? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, affluence is certainly a risk factor for higher rates of substance use, in particular among youth. Um, and while that um, factor is not necessarily unique to Marin, as you aptly pointed out, there's many other affluent counties in California. Um, it, it Affluence is sort of a proxy risk factor for um, other underlying um, contributors to higher rates of youth um, substance use and, and also just or mental health outcomes among youth generally. And those underlying risk factors that tend to travel along with affluence include things like stress along with um, lower levels of parental involvement or parental monitoring. Um, In addition, the two most impactful factors that influence rates of substance use among a population generally for individuals of any age include drug availability, so ease of access, and obtaining a drug and how um, uh, often that drug is being used or circulated in a community. And then something that we refer to as perceived risk. Perceived risk refers to the um, amount of harm that an individual associates with um, use of a certain drug. Um, so at least when it, uh, when an individual is starting out and experimenting with drug use, which is what teens are doing since most um, people who are going to use drugs begin using them during their teenage years, they um, generally are aiming to use in a way that doesn't result in significant harm. And in turn, um, people tend to grav- gravitate at least initially towards substances that they perceive as carrying a lower risk of harm. Um, and perceived risk is something that varies over time across generations and in different populations. And things such as um, uh, modeling by parents, the degree to which uh, teenagers see their parents using a certain substance impacts the level of perceived risk associated with that substance. So um, a drug such as alcohol that is more widely used or at least more widely used out in the open um, is going to carry a lower perceived risk than a substance that is a illicit and not widely used in the open. And this um, is a, a very strong and impactful factor when it comes to what youth decide to do um, and how often they decide to use a certain substance. So that when it comes to Marin, bringing it back locally, um, you know, there are certain factors that Matt alluded to earlier that um, both increase the availability or ease of access of drugs in this county compared to other counties and that also lead to a lower perceived risk associated with substance use here for our youth compared to other counties. And Matt, when we're looking at the data here, are there certain types of drugs that you're seeing circulating among the youth of Marin County more than others? And are there certain age groups that we're talking about? Does this go down to middle school, for example? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, so in terms of the substances, uh, we do see, you know, alcohol and cannabis, you know, top, top of the list. Um, in fact, 
Marin County youth um, had the highest rates of regular cannabis use of any county in the, the county health rankings. 33% of our 11th graders reported using cannabis in the past 30 days, one in three, um, which was just above Humboldt County or some of those other, you know, further north counties that people may, may associate as being part of that sort of emerald triangle of, of cannabis. Um, so that's, that's obviously a concern. And then, you know, as, as a trend, we're particularly concerned about, um, more use of uh, psychedelics, you know, we see, um, we see psilocybin use more and uh, that's sort of kind of flown under the radar from a regulatory standpoint. It is uh, finding its way into our youth may not have um, as much awareness of the risks or what the proper dosing might be. Um, and we're, you know, we've had some really tragic in- including fatal outcomes of people who um, just having impaired judgment, being under the influence of psychedelics, um, and, and engaging in risky behavior that is, it's a, a tragic consequence. So that's another trend. And then finally, um, you know, the, the, the concern about fentanyl, everyone's talking about the fentanyl, um, pandemic or epidemic. We are concerned, obviously, in Marin County that we have had fentanyl related overdose deaths. Fentanyl is the leading cause of accidental death in Marin County right now. The leading cause of death overall in residents under age 55 is actually opioid overdose. Um, and for youth, they're obtaining fentanyl primarily through by mistake. It is not being intentionally consumed. When they consume fentanyl, it is because it's part of a counterfeit uh, prescription pill like Xanax, something they may be seeking to relax them, like a, a Xanax, which is a sedative, but it might be contaminated with fentanyl if they're getting it on the street market or on the internet, or Adderall, you know, stimulants that might be, you know, consumed or, or obtained through the black market as well. Really, that's a, a serious concern for me as a public health officer that our youth are increasingly accessing substances that could potentially uh, have life-threatening consequences they're not aware of. So this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing Marin County's problem with unusually high rates of underage drug and alcohol use. We're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County's public health officer, and Dr. Emily Tajani, a Marin-based adolescent psychologist specializing in addiction medicine. And we'd love to hear from you as well. How do you deal with underage drinking or drug use in your home? Do you have a story about underage substance abuse you'd like to share with our listeners? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Well, we have a listener, Linny, who writes in, first, thank you for raising awareness of illicit fentanyl and other illicit synthetic drugs in Marin County. And Linny writes, my son, Jeff, didn't know he was taking fentanyl, but he died at age 46 of fentanyl poisoning. Parents need to be aware that their child's life can be taken in a second if they accidentally get fentanyl. And I can attest there is no worse thing that can happen to a parent than to lose a child. Well, Lenny, my heart certainly goes out to you for your loss. My condolences there. Emily, I'm just wondering how you might respond um, to Lenny's story here. What do you tell parents? What do you tell the teens who are facing this kind of risk with fentanyl circulating? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss, Lenny. Um, It's... You know, it, it's really tragic and really scary what's happening out there um, with fentanyl lately. Um, historically, uh, 
opioid overdoses were um, most prevalent among people who had been using opioids for some time and had developed tolerance and in turn had to increase the um, dose or amount they used in order to get the same effect. Um, nowadays, because of fentanyl and how pervasive it is and how um, commonly it can be contaminating other substances, um, even a very small amount can lead to um, complete cessation of breathing and in turn accidental overdose death with, you know, just that first use. So um, there really isn't an opportunity for young people to get to kind of learn from experience and um, be able to sort of moderate their um, behaviors based on um, dangerous but not fatal things that happen early in their, um, you know, experience using drugs for those who, who are using at this age. Um, you know, the other thing that's important to note is that while over the last um, five to 10 years, the number of teens and young adults who are initiating opioid use has begun to decline, um, most likely in large part because of awareness of the significant risk associated with using opioids, the um, rate of overdose death amongst teens and young adults has continued to climb. And in fact, over the last couple of years, the rate um, of increase in overdose death from opioids has been the highest in teens and young adults compared to other age groups. So it's a very real, very significant problem. And it's important to remember that even um, if your child is not using opioids and does not appear to be at risk for using opioids, that they are still at risk for accidental death to fentanyl. And here's where knowledge really can be powerful. Um, it's never too early to ha start having discussions about this. And it's very important to keep the discussions about the risks of um, overdose death by fentanyl and fentanyl contamination of other substances sort of is an ongoing conversational and in fact dinner topic um, for families with young people. That sounds like really sound advice and I appreciate you sharing that. And Matt, I wanted to ask you just more generally what you would recommend parents do to help minimize the risk that their kids will start using these substances or at least using them in, in some dangerous ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this conversation itself, I think, is, is a good example of what we need to be doing more of. You know, I think part of it is just normalizing the conversation itself. You know, what, what may have been uh, more normal kind of experimentation in the past now potentially has more lethal consequences. Um, we're also, there's, you know, there's some trends at play that I think change the conversation. You know, many of us who are adults now, really grew up and developed our sense of risk in a different environment. You know, cannabis, THC concentrations are much lower. Fentanyl was not part of the equation. We also didn't have the science available to us that we have now that demonstrates that the earlier we start, the more the higher risk we are of actually developing a, a lifelong dependency. For every year that we're able to delay that start of the first use from about age 13 to age 21, we decrease about 5% the risk that that person will, do, will develop lifelong dependency. So some of this is just knowing those facts, knowing those basic pillars of our response. And then, you know, as a parent, I've got a, you know, I've got a, a teenager, I've got someone in eighth grade, and someone who just graduated from high school. These are not necessarily super easy conversations to have, but I think the, you know, the, the trick, you know, for me, I, I, I learned a lot from a guy named Dan Siegel, who's a, who's a clinical psychologist. And he said, basically, to set the stage for these conversations, you need three things for the kids. They need to feel safe, they need to feel soothed, and they need to feel seen. Safe, soothed, and seen. And those are the elements of the kind of healthy conversation you can have. And I don't know about you, but, you know, growing up, if I was, you know, came in late and, 
you know, had alcohol in my breath, you know, like that was not feeling safe soon in terms of my dad's response to that situation. <laughs> um, so I think we do need to sort of grow up a little bit in terms of our own response to this as a community and recognize that this is experimentation is happening and we need to offer children and, and youth and our students and, and children what the, you know, a, a safe environment for the dialogue itself and created an opportunity to, to listen to what their stresses are, listen to what their concerns are. And that's, I think, the most important single message that we could offer in terms of for parents. And Emily, building off of Matt's points here and his guidance, what do you recommend for parents about how to talk to our kids about substance abuse? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like the safe, soothed, and seen um, concept. And that really reflects what both the research shows to be effective and what clinically in my own experience working with youth and parents, um, what I found to be effective. Um, it, having a relationship um, with a parent or really any adult, if, if, if a parent isn't available, where the youth feels understood and supported by that parent and feels like um, it is uh, safe and going to be well received to approach them um, with any, you know, sort of topic of discussion or concern is really the most important protective factor when it comes to reducing the risk of adolescent substance use and even addiction and um, reducing the risk of uh, depression and anxiety disorders. So while um, it can be really scary for parents to think about um their child, um, you know, potentially engaging in some of these risky behaviors. It's important for parents to kind of take a moment to check in with themselves, recognize how they're feeling, but then really try to um, do some um, self-regulation, if you will, to try to hear their child out and really listen more than you talk is a good general rule, trying to approach these topics from a curious stance, um, you know, asking some questions to understand where the child is coming from, to figure out what the child is wanting to um, learn from the conversation. And often really what um, the teen is looking for is really a safe place to sort of get things off their chest to, um, you know, vent and, and share what's happening in their life and have a validating um uh, ear and voice to do that with. So um, really just trying to empathize with the um, issues and the experiences that the, um, the child is is going through can be really very helpful. Trying to avoid fear-based or punitive um, approaches is also important. Mm-hmm. Criticism and punishment tend to actually increase the likelihood of um, substance use um, among youth, not decrease it. And things like um, feeling supported, feeling safe, feeling seen, feeling heard, and being able to talk about anything um, with a parent are all of uh, are all factors that reduce the Absolutely. risk of problematic substance use developing. Makes sense. So this is State of the Bay, local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco, Bay Area. If you're just joining us, I'm Ethan Elkine, and we're discussing Marin County's problem with underage drug and alcohol use, joined by Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County's public health officer, and Dr. Emily Tijani, Marin County-based adolescent psychologist specializing in addiction medicine. And we'd love to hear from you if you're concerned about your child's exposure to alcohol or drugs. If you have questions for our guest tonight, you can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. We do have A listener just emailed in, Samantha from Marin, writes, listening to this interesting conversation, I'm more concerned about fentanyl and cannabis. 
wouldn't it then actually make more sense to talk to my high schooler about pot and actually help get dispensary pot that is free of this, of fentanyl, if I know she will use it regardless? Matt, any thoughts in response to Samantha's email here? Yeah, we are not seeing, um, you know, the fentanyl that we are seeing making its way into uh, the drug supply has not, we're not seeing a lot of I have not in fact seen any fentanyl in cannabis in Marin County. So that's, um, that's one factor. The other is that we do know that, um, the dispensaries can in some ways actually normalize, um, sort of the use of cannabis and can have unintended consequences in terms of increasing availability for young people. Um, and that's, uh, you know, one of our principles of our response needs to be reducing availability and access. Um, to substances. And that's one of the reasons why um, we have been uh, relatively clear that we don't think, you know, widespread um, use of, uh, of dispensaries in Marin County is is healthy for us, given that we already know that we have uh, a high rate of, of cannabis use in our youth. All right. Well, we've got a caller on the line. We just got a few minutes left here. So I want to go ahead and uh, and take that call. Go ahead. I didn't get your name, by the way, if you want to announce your name and where you're calling from. Um, uh, my name is Connor from Oakland, um, and I was wondering if there was a safe way to test for fentanyl in drugs that could be widely available for use to help prevent some of these accidental overdoses. Great. No, it's a really great question. Thank you for dialing in. With that, Matt, is there a test for fentanyl that parents and others can utilize? Absolutely. There, there are test strips, fentanyl test strips. This is what we call harm reduction strategy. It's a recognized that if people are going to be using substances, that they can test those substances for the presence of fentanyl before they use. Um, and fentanyl test strips are available in Marin, um, at the SPAR Center. Um, and, and other, and other areas. We, we encourage the use of fentanyl test strips for people who are, um, planning to use substances and to, to verify that they're not containing something they don't intend to take. All right. Well, thank you for that question. We did get an email from Jim who writes, from my experience, I think it is a bunch of kids who are privileged. Their parents are stoned and microdosing, and there's a generally permissive atmosphere. Kids and parents don't have to work, so there is no seriousness. That's uh, from a listener, Jim. Well, we just got about a minute left here. And Emily, I want to just let you take the final word on this. What can those outside of, we talked about what parents can do, but what about those just part of the community, part of maybe that culture that Jim was talking about, schools, uh, et cetera, what would you recommend we try to do to address this this challenge here in Marin County? Mm, That's a great question. And I think that's a great one to close with because, you know, we as um, individuals, as humans, we don't exist in isolation from our environment. And this really does take a village. Um, creating a community in which um, people feel they belong and that they are supported and connected um, with each other is such a powerful um, antidote to the allure of um, or the pull of drugs and really our brain's reward pathway, which um, addictive drugs co-opt and which ultimately can lead to the development of an addictive disorder is also activated by social interaction or social rewards. Social rewards are the most powerful non-drug reward available. So finding ways to encourage pro-social interaction and engagement and creating warm, supportive, nurturing communities where um, healthy activities are available and accessible to all, in particular to our youth, is um, really one of the best ways to prevent um, the development of addictive uh, disorders or substance use disorders. 
And Matt, very briefly, anything you want to add to Emily's response there? Well, hearing her response, like winning the Super Bowl would have been would have been helpful for all of us. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to also recognize, just to acknowledge the work that the great work that the schools are doing, um, and you know, for. For, for parents with kids in schools, you know, recognize that your schools are a huge partner for us um, and have been really stepping forward to help address this issue. And, and kids can get help within the school setting at wellness centers across across schools across Marin. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and talking about this really important issue. That's Dr. Matt Willis, Marin County's public health officer, and Dr. Emily Tajani, Marin-based adolescent psychologist specializing in addiction medicine. Thank you both so much for joining State of the Bay. Thank you. And if you access the resources that we referenced tonight or learn more about this issue, you can visit us on our State of the Bay page at KALW.org. Well, coming up after the break, we'll talk with George McCalman about his book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. So stay with us. Tune into KALW tonight for the broadcast of a town hall on reinventing journalism to strengthen democracy. It's a conversation recorded live at our downtown event space with innovators working to build trust in honest and open reporting. You have to start with listening if you want to be relevant, and you have to be about depth, and you have to be about trust earning, not assuming that you you have trust with the people you're serving. The Town Hall on Reinventing Journalism is airing tonight at 7, only here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. All right. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And tonight I'm thrilled to be talking to a true Bay Area Renaissance man, George McCalman. George does it all. He's a visual artist, storyteller, graphic designer, illustrator, journalist, and author. And he also heads up his own creative agency, McCalman Company, McCalman Co., if I said that correctly. So tonight we're so glad George is here to talk about his wonderful book that he researched, wrote, and illustrated called Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. George, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you so much, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, George, this is one of those times where I feel bad that it's radio and not visual because our listeners cannot see the book. And it truly is a beautiful book, the illustrations alone, but just the way it's presented. And I'd love to just take a few seconds to emphasize just how colorful and detailed it is. It's got two-page spreads, hand-drawn portraits of important figures. Can you just describe how this book began and maybe try to describe it somewhat visually for our listeners so they can appreciate what you did here with this, with this work? Yes. Uh, so the origin point of this book was a self-assigned project, a daily painting and research and writing project I assigned myself um, eight years ago, this this month. And I was curious, I had my own just kind of, uh, I, I, I wanted to educate myself, basically. Yeah, I, I knew that I didn't know enough about Black history, and I wasn't looking externally, I was looking internally at myself and my own edification, my own education. And along the way, in doing this daily project, I got a lot of feedback. I was releasing it on Instagram. It was a very um, kind of self-contained thing. And as I was working on it, it became clear to me that it was a much larger project at, that I decided in the middle of it that I was going to attend to. Hmm. And how did you select these Black history pioneers that you included in the book? Um, 
the truth is, it was an emotional response. Just people I was personally interested in. Uh, when the process graduated into book literary form, I did a lot more research and my uh, decision making was more rigorous. But the first project was just people that I was not that familiar with. And that became the kind of wormhole that I went through. Finding one person introduced me to another person or reintroduced me to another pioneer. And it just went on from there. Were there any pleasant surprises as you were picking people to feature in this illustrated book? Yes. And, and it became a theme of the entire project where even figures that I knew, I thought I knew, I learned new facets of their lives. You know, we as human beings, we contain the multitudes and our, our cultural figures are the same thing. Like we think we know Martin Luther King, but there are just aspects of his life. We think we know Malcolm X. We think we know Harriet Tubman because their um, stories are trotted out in soundbite forms a couple times a year. But these are people who live vast, rich, complex, really interesting lives. And I was really keyed into that. It was all the stories that I did not know about. Yeah. Any you want to share in particular, you know, important figures that we don't learn about in our history classes? Well, it's, um, it's less the markers of history and more the, the lives they live that helped them become the people that they were. Uh, one example is Dr. Maya Angelou. Um, I didn't realize that Dr. Angelou had spent a lot of time in San Francisco. And that time uh, really affected and produced a lot of the influences that went into her writing. And the time that she spent in the Bay was actually really seminal in terms of her own development. And so that was one of those things that I was, I just didn't know before. And it actually impacted and affected this, the way that uh, my co-writer April Reynolds and I decided to frame her story. It was less from the kind of Oprah, you know, kind of, you know, she was already an icon and Oprah kind of vaulted her into uh, a, a larger understanding. But who I was interested in is the woman who was still being formed during the time that she was in the Bay and how that affected everything else, her writing and her perspective. And I imagine there's a certain political aspect to this too. I noted you did pick out one prominent African-American conservative, Ben Carson, ran mm -hmm. for president, served in the Trump administration, but you definitely kind of uh, are critical in some ways. I think that comes through in how you're writing up someone like Ben, Car ben Carson. And I'm wondering how politics may or may not have factored in to who you were selecting and how you chose to depict them. Well, you know, my, my view of a lot of this is not through our current realm of the binary way that we talk about people, they're either in or they're out, which I think is really nonsense. Um, human beings are really complicated and not anyone is purely one thing or the other. And my bias with Ben Carson is personal because I am in my early 50s and I grew up with Ben Carson being a venerated superhero as a neurosurgeon. And it's, it's the side of him that a lot of people don't know about but um, this man was a towering influence and he was a towering impact in, in, the, in the medical field altogether. Um, and then later in life, he decided to wear his dopey views in full view. 
and then he became a patsy of the Trump administration, and and his the perception of him transformed uh, because of that. But what I wanted to represent is that we can't always cast out the people who are um, who disappoint us. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to show was the complexity of having someone who had fallen from grace, but still had accomplished so much that he was impossible to ignore. Mm-hmm. It's just the complexity of, of being human, really, at, at the end of it. And I'd like mm-hmm. to ask you about your artistic processes, why your the illustrations, which are really striking. How did you approach each of these portraits? You had so many to draw and so many different options for how you could draw them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the very kind of clear visual uh, cues of this book as to your earlier point is how colorful it is, is the book is. And that is by design. That is by my design. And one of the other choices I made early was that every portrait would be a completely different style. And what I wanted to do was um, be a fly in the ointment of this kind of monolithic way that America thinks of the black community I wanted to individualize each person within the collective diaspora that we actually are. And I wanted to show more humanity and individuality. Rendering everyone in the same style of of illustration would have been one way of doing it, but I decided it's not the way that I wanted to do it. And George, where can people see some of your recent work? I know you have a, a number of pieces that are on exhibit or have been on exhibit. Yes, um, I currently have some art uh, at Cult Exhibitions, which is um, a gallery curated by Amy Freeberg, which is up for another few weeks. And I have a show coming up at Park Life Gallery, which will be at the tail end of April into May. Um, and there's a larger project around this book that I am I cannot say yet, but I've been uh, very annoyingly teasing it out. It is going to take the book into a completely different realm and a much larger scope. And I'm super excited. I'm going to be creating a whole lot of new work around this subject for this initiative. All right. So we'll have to stay tuned what happens uh, with the book. Any other final thoughts here about uh, Black History Month and just the role of art in weaving these historical figures to life? Yes. Um, one of the taglines of the book, the hidden taglines, is that Black history is every month and that we tend to localize these conversations one month of the year. is It's as American as everything else, but this subject and this book deserves your attention every single day of the year. Absolutely. Well, George, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of the book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the unseen. You can also keep up with George on his Instagram page at George.McCalman. George, thank you so much for coming on State of the Bay. Congrats on the book. Thank you so much, Ethan. I really appreciate it. And that's State of the Bay for this week. State of the Bay will be off the air next week for the holiday, but please join us the following Monday at 6 when we'll discuss the racial wealth gap and how innovative Bay Area investors are harnessing capitalism to eradicate it. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the show. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, you can visit us on our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Jillian Emblad, Wendy Holcomb, and Katie Colley. It was engineered by David Kwan. 
and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening. <laughs>